2: an evening with Clark Karpour and Matilda Bernstein Sycamore. Um, you can take a copy of Compass on the table uh, to learn about our upcoming programs. Um, and if you're posting about tonight online, uh, you can use the hashtag, hashtag at the Pratt, and that collects all of um, the things people are posting on one landing page to show your love for the Pratt. Um, tonight, uh, Porochista and Matilda will talk via um, Skype and here, uh, we'll have a, and they'll both read for a little bit. We'll have a Q&A, and then there will be time to get books from the local independent bookstore, the Ivy Bookshop. Both authors tonight challenge conventions and identity across spectrums, be it gender, health, or what it means to be a citizen, all asking for a different future. So Poroshita Karpawa's novels, Sons and Other Flammable Objects, and The Last Illusion were both met with wide acclaim. She's a National Endowment for the Arts Award recipient, and her nonfiction has appeared in many sections of the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, *L. Slate, Salon, and Book Forum, among others. Sick is her grueling emotional journey as a woman an Iranian-American, a writer, and a lifelong sufferer of undiagnosed health problems, in which she examines her subsequent struggles with mental illness and addiction to doctor-prescribed benzos um, that both aided and eroded her health. She considers trauma, place, support, family relationships, the whole person really, and what it means to feel at home or in your skin and sick. And then we also have Matilda Sycamore here tonight, who's the author of a memoir and three novels and the editor of five nonfiction anthologies. She's a Lambda Literary Award winner and has received an American Library Associ- Association Stonewall honor. Her writing is searing, hilarious, and leaves nothing unchallenged. Her newest book, Sketch to See, brings 1990s gay culture startlingly back to life as Alexa, a 21-year-old queen and her friends grapple with the impact of growing up at a time when desire and death were intertwined. So please give a warm welcome to Matilda and Porochista.
0: Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming. Hi, Porochista. (laughs) Um, So I'm going to start. I'll just read, um, read a little bit from sketch to see. Um, and all you really need to know is the book takes place in 1995 in Boston, a city rapidly afraid of difference. I'm going to read from a chapter towards the end. Uh, this chapter is called "Too Sexy," and in the chapter, uh, the narrator Alexa um, has just gotten back. I'm reading from the end of the chapter, so uh, she's just gotten back from a shoplifting, a coked-out shoplifting spree uh, with Avery, where they've been stealing sleeping bags and delivering them outside of homeless shelters. Um, And now they're going to get their HIV test results. So I'll start there. Everyone can hear me all right on the mic and everything. Can you hear me all too? Great. Here we are in Boylston, opening the door in the wind tunnel, and then checking in at the front desk where the receptionist gives us that fake smile and then waves us into the waiting room dungeon. Clinics are so depressing. It's like they're just waiting for you to die. Why can't they at least play good music? Something with a beat, maybe a DJ and a dance floor. They could easily fit a disco ball over there in that corner by the dusty plastic flowers. What about real flowers? Even something cheap. Carnations. What about carnations? What about art on the walls? I'm sure there are plenty of rich people who would be glad to donate art. Or if not, then give me a couple of 20s and I'll go to the Goodwill to find some wacky glamour. Or at least paint the walls bright colors instead of this atrocious faded gray and tan wallpaper. We're here to take care of ourselves, not to fade into nothingness. What about velvet sofas and herbal tea and steamed vegetables and brown rice and maybe something to read besides pamphlets about STDs? What if the clinic was like a cafe where you could hang out and gossip and cruise or even read a good book? There could be a library or free massage or acupuncture or hugs, right? What about hugs? Instead of hugs, we just get sterile beige carpet and hand-me-down office chairs and a few boring ads for safe sex. What about makeup lessons or a reading group? If no one wants to read, we could practice all Kevin O'Quinn's makeup tricks. I wouldn't mind practicing makeup tricks with a bunch of queens at the STD clinic. What about a DJing workshop? I would love a DJing workshop. Art supplies. What about art supplies? They call my number, and Avery's still holding my hand, and I'm thinking about colored pencils and crayons and magic markers and oil pastels. Or what about making collages? The clinic would be such a great place to make a collage. It wouldn't even cost anything. Everyone could just bring in their old magazines and cut and paste and get to know one another. It would be fun. Avery's squeezing my hand tighter. I can't believe she's 23, but she's never been tested before. They call my number again, and then I'm in another sterile room. This one feels like they sucked out all the air, and some blonde woman in a powder blue cardigan with pearly buttons asked me what I would do if I tested positive. I have nothing against powder blue cardigans, especially not powder blue cardigans with pearly buttons. I mean, I have a lavender one just like it, but that strand of pearls around her neck, real pearls. Those pearls, I want to say. What are you trying to say with those pearls? How would you react if you tested positive? She asked me again. Honey, I'm thinking, I would jump off a bridge. Can you take me to the highest bridge? I need a ride. You don't drive. Then at least give me directions. I want to say that I would go out and do so many drugs that I wouldn't even know my name. My name is Luca. I live on the second floor. I live upstairs from you. Yes, I think you've seen me before. But instead, I just say, I don't know. She asks me about my risks. I don't ask about hers. Is she going to give me my results? After she suggests condoms for oral sex, yeah, I already tried that, she finally looks down at the piece of paper and says, you tested negative for HIV. Thank you for coming in today. Do you have any questions for me? Back in the waiting room, now I'm nervous waiting for Avery until he comes out with a smile. I can't believe how hot it is in here. I'm totally covered in sweat. We get to Avery's and she pours a bunch of coke on the mirror without even taking off her coat. Snorts way too much and then shakes her head back and forth and starts jumping up and down. She hands me the mirror, says, let me hold you while you do it. Come on, come on, hurry up, catch up with me. And then I'll bend you over and fuck you over the sink. I thought you never wanted to have sex again. That was before. I wake up the next day singing, I think I love you. What am I so afraid of? I'm afraid that there's no cure for. What are the rest of the words? No cure for, no cure for. Avery, do you know that song? Who sings it? I think I love you. What am I so afraid of? Yeah, yeah, that's the one. I'm just imitating you. The way it all blends together. One day and then the next. One store and then the next. One line and then the next. The day we wheel a whole shopping cart full of canned food out of Star Market. Hello, food drive. And then the next Star Market. And the next. Honey. We're getting a tour of all the star markets. Who's the star now? That feeling in my head. Where am I? That feeling when I'm sitting with Nate and he's speaking and I'm trying to pay attention. Oh right, another cocktail. Thank you. That feeling in my head. So warm and cool at the same time. Blending these pills and powders and potions and yes. That feeling in my head. Hold me. The way my eyes can be blue, but really that's white and blue in a circle of green. Sparkly brown spots on the left, I never realized brown could sparkle. Is it really purple in disguise? Like the way the white of the eyes is the part that shines the most, and you never realize that from far away. Or the way skin is, or really all these little holes, some dry and some greasy, even after the apricot facial scrub and oil-free moisturizer, it's never just smooth except from far away. And I guess that's why so many people wear so much makeup. But even the bags under my eyes can become pretty when I stare long enough and let everything blur. Look! Look how my lower lip is bigger and puffier and redder than the upper lip. And now, our special guest for the evening. Teeth. That's just the way you are. Teeth. We think of you as white, but that's only compared to night. So much closer to yellow, hello, unless you've been bleached, bleached, leached, and impeached. No, don't impeach my teeth, I swear. They didn't mean to lie when they said they were light, bright, spike, fright, mighty, fighty, tidy, what, I swear. Really, stop looking for stains, okay? Stop pulling back skin to disguise structure. Focus on the way the water pours over your hands in little, tiny waterfalls. All this hot water for my hands. Oatmeal, soap, a massage until I'm ready to take out my contacts. Right, I'm taking out my contacts. And then, time for magical marinal. Oh, yeah. Avery rings the bell, and when I get to the door in my robe, he's standing there with sunflowers. What a great way to start the day. Then she reaches down and picks up a boombox. Where'd you get that boombox? I'm bringing back the 80s. Oh no, please not the 80s. Anything but the 80s. Even the 70s. I mean, you know how much I hate disco, but anything's better than Michael Jackson. Thank you for the flowers. They're beautiful. Okay, 1991, it was only four years ago, but wait until you hear this. You're beautiful, too sexy. Avery wants to watch the sunset, and when we get to the Esplanade, it's almost warm out. I mean, it's freezing, but at least there's no wind. Look at those pink clouds over there. Someone's finally lighting the Sitco sign on fire. Avery puts the boombox down and says, are you ready? And she presses play. No way. The beat starts and I can't help it. I'm flinging myself into the air and around, falling to the ground and rolling in the frozen grass toward water and then jumping across the paved part and back again for more space. Give her. Give her what? Give her the river. Deliver. Shiver. My liver. And Avery's clapping and I'm throwing my arms everywhere hands flying up and back, head in every direction. Yes, there are a few tourists and joggers who look scared. Too sexy for my, too sexy for my, too sexy for my. And then I do the big kick in the air as high as possible, and I land with one leg straight out and the other crossed underneath like I'm just sitting there so calmly. Avery comes over to fan me with her hand, and that's when I jump up and twist around her. Is this another mix? How many mixes are there? And there's that beat, like one of those movie songs. Girl, where the hell did you find I'm too sexy anyway? Okay, okay. Here I go, running down the esplanade, and Avery's cackling, and I start to twirl around and around until I'm dizzy enough that doing the falling over runway really is falling. Bending side to side and taking the tight rope into fight rope, light rope, blight rope. Smash the glass and jump up and down. Delight rope. And Avery runs in front of me and I stop, turn, put my hand on her face, and then we turn around together. I'm holding onto her back like I could hold on forever, but then I push her aside and she laughs. And what is this mix? I don't remember this mix. And now I'm leaning back against Avery like a prop, or wall, or treasure, or the end of the line, or sustenance. Thank
1: you. <laughs> and now for stuff Thank you so much, that was so wonderful, it's so great to hear you all that. Oh, great. thank you. <laughs> That's amazing. I only mean,
0: could see a part of you. Um, oh, okay, just part of me.
1: We'll <laughs> um, Thank you all for um, coming too. Thank you so much for uh, allowing me to Skype in because it's not, you know, my book tour is about to be truncated because of various subject matter of my book, so it's more um and so I haven't been able to do um, all my events. And so today I was in the doctor's office for most of the day. Actually, Matilda for the band aids that they um, put put on me today all day because I thought it matched the 90s subject matter. Uh-huh. But, um, I love sketches, I'm a huge fan of Matilda, so she's um, so nice that she we read this together. So, anyways, I'm just going to read a little bit from sick, and I decided to read a section that I've never read before, um, just because it sort of has synchronicity, it Matilda's work, and it's a sort of 90 section, but um, basically, you know, this is my memoir that has lost with Lyme disease, um, um, but also being undiagnosed and misdiagnosed, and um, coming to... Going through a crazy journey through that. Um, and it kind of investigates where I might have initially gotten my Lyme disease because I actually don't know. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm still a mental battle I didn't actually expect that was what was written, but um, I had a really bad relapse in January of last year. So, anyways, I'm going to read a section that's maybe less Lyme specific, but it's one of the sections that focuses on New York in the 90s. And, I um, you know, people may ask where I got mine. I, I, I say it was like on the East Coast because that's, you know, I grew up in Southern California and I was born in Iran. Um, and there was that awareness around mine there. And of course, on the East Coast, there's quite a lot. Um, but so this is a section that takes place very much around the time of Saskatchewan City too. Um, and this is um, me, me in New York, um, or just as I got to New York. So I'll just read this little section. But I'm going to write this, so that's, that's the first. I usually do the line sections. Okay. I felt more dedicated than ever to making New York my home, and indeed, when it came time for colleges, all with the field of the obligatory California state schools were on the East Coast. There was not directly in New York, but like Columbia and NYU, and close to like Brown. In the end, the school I chose, that chose me, was a surprising one, Sarah Lawrence College. I only knew a few things about it. One was that its pamphlet, one was it? one was that it's pamphlet had announced iconoclizing in defense culture. We were different, and so are we, was the slogan of the flyer that hit home for me. I also knew that it had a creative writing program, and that ensured I could be in those with sounding labs called workshops. But finally, I knew it was known for its lesbians. I remember one of my first crushes of beautiful Melissa Jazz posts. A friend named Kara, once mentioned wanting to go to Sarah Lesbian college. There was much sexuality I felt I needed to at least have the options options to explore outside the supervision of my parents. West to New York College, in Green and in Bronxville. Even though student body was made up of about one third boys, it was still the no typical rich girls' liberal arts college. I was the only scholarship kid I knew. I never even spend the night in a friend's house. Some of were not allowed in my house, just like teen magazines, makeup and dates, of course. And someday I was going to be on my own. 20 minutes outside the city I always dreamed of living in. Part of it was an actual, very actualizing, as a fantasy, the New York girl I fantasized about becoming. My first week there, I marched to the college bookstore, knowing that she could charge all sorts of things to your parents' account, and it would all come up as bookstore. And so I purchased a full carton of Mar- Marlboro Reds. As a child, I watched old movies and posts with crammed cigarettes in front of the mirror and always always looking forward to a day when I could become an actual smoker. My first crush was a Marlboro man. Land well, I imagined sharing dra- drags with him somewhere on a horse in Marlboro country. So here I was now with Memphis cigarettes, and now it's just approved with the team whole campus smoked in 1996. I took them to my dorm room and spent hours practicing in front of the mirror, smoking a quarter of a pack a day, and I'm sure I'd be addicted in no time. And I achieved just that. This would be an addiction that plagued me for over half my life. It would also be an affliction I brought onto myself that every doctor later in my life would know as a serious disadvantage in battling with chronic illness, the body ultimately unforgiving of that vice. I brought a wardrobe all black and it only grew. It was the 90s when black was a like me an instant fashion of art. I couldn't understand the Sarah girls at first. Too many were from the Midwest and South regions that didn't make sense to me and so I spent all my time in the city. I'd often missed that last 1.30 a.m. train back to Bronxville so I'd be forced to stay out all night in New York City. And there I was, the girl in the neo Malcolm glasses and about black turtleneck writing in the East Village 24 hour cafes all night, who subsisted on coffee and cigarettes and bagels. Both friends who were downtown artists and poets and writers. Soon I knew, we knew where to drink underage without being carted. And soon I was the girl drunk for the first time in my life on St. Mark's Place, vomiting on the sidewalk, on a single gutter pump club kid licking an eye. I'm so happy right now. I remember slurring into my friend's arms who tried to stop me until she realized my whole point was to get out of control that first time I properly drank, trying every single mixed drink on the menu of that G-Cafe. This is, by the way, Dojo's was just um, shut down in St. Mark's a while ago, but the second location of Dojo's was shut down in another part of New York City just this week, sadly. Uh, suddenly, I was the girl at every reading at St. Mark's Poetry Project, the New York Poets Cafe, dragging out school poems I'd never read but wanted to baptize in good creative energy and carrying in those spaces. Suddenly, I was the girl who went to clubs alone, only returned back to campus to sleep away a few remaining daylight hours. Suddenly, I was the girl with you near-sleep know, boyfriends. Suddenly, I was the girl making out the girls with girls casually that was nothing to me, a good, a good old Sarah Lynn College. And suddenly I looked sick, looked like we all did, as heroin sheep had taken a hold of the nineties and serving our campus. To look just barely on the wrong side of life and the right side of death was a desirable thing, my friend seemed to agree. And that worked. It's just suddenly drugs. Since that first hallucinatory surgery experience as a child, I had not had a drug experience. But Sarah Morris drugs were all around me in abundance. This was the golden age, and the last gasp of counterculture. Drugs were a part of the Part of nearly life for nearly every other person I knew. It was hard to resist. The girl I had matched the ones who cigarettes and wore all black and those poetry readings and puked on St. Mark's was, course of course, a girl who traveled with drugs. I remember reading Go Ask Alice the Teenagers, but feverishly, all its warnings sounded mesmerizing. All that This Is Your Brain on Drugs ads having a secret of war to me. I always wanted to escape, and before I even escape the body, I realized there were easier ways to escape the mind. Dabbles I did. Pot doesn't count, everyone would always say, so I went back and forth with that at first. There's did little for me as I mix it with alcohol, always a bad idea but my kind, a of bad idea. The centerpiece of so many lost nights and weary weekends. And then I had a boyfriend who confided in me that he'd been taking coke, and if I wanted to, come to, if I wanted to, I'd come to a cocaine party. Hard drugs were inconceivable to me as my first. Hard drugs were not so inconceivable to me as my first friend, and Sarah Morris, were all in with the crack house what we nicknamed the called the Crackhead, which is known for its junkies. The first drugs I saw in my life before marijuana was heroin. But I wandered and wandered into the crack house's halls freshman year. I was 18 and I was being invited to watch friends shoot up in their rooms. It was all vaguely glamorous. Everyone in black patent leather, a soundtrack mod, industrial, people exhausted and beautiful, mowing in and out with and wasted. I dreamed of trying it, but I never did. One reason being that I saw the negative effects quite rapidly, and I ended up losing three friends to heroin from that time, to a few years after graduation. But the cocaine was something else to me, something that seemed less deadly. But nonetheless, sparkly and dangerous. I agreed to go to the party. And that night, in a cramped dorm room filled with students I didn't know and had never really seen on campus, sitting cross legged on a dirty carpet with action movie soundtracks blasting in the background and a CD cover with a gold dollar bill white dust on being passed around, was the start of a casual relationship I had with cocaine all the way to 2015. Am I doing it wrong? I whispered to my boyfriend over the Pulp soundtrack as I rolled and re-rolled the same twenty dollars bill hoping there was no residue on my face. He squinted to inspect my face after a science project. People could be so serious on cover. He said, no, you got this. Someone's a natural. I was. I enjoyed it more than I thought I would. It was like coffee, but high was very positive. No anxiety all the make it so it lasted for the right amount of time. No long trips to worry about it. It also did not seem to addict me in the way I feared, but my love of it also told me, just as cigarettes had proven, that I was indeed an addictive type. The drug found me over and over the next few years, once in the form of a present from a socialite who liked me and left me an eight ball and a crack chocolate rabbit on Easter Sunday, often in the form of bums used in his back pocket. And then in the day end the endless supply of my senior year, sweet mate Sarah, who became one of the premier dealers on campus. And who in exchange for hiding her statues in their room gave me as much more access to it as I wanted. I dipped in and out of lines and bumps off news daily when the big papers and early mornings were involved. It felt like just another part of me that I discovered in New York City, that New York City artist schools did, or someone else was buying especially. In one of my earliest encounters with email, I wrote to my California hometown bus friend that I tried to create. Why you changed you up? No, actually, I'm just more myself than ever. I wrote back. And because this was the 90s, ecstasy and mushrooms soon came to mix, and marijuana became the staple and the thing that you used to come down from all the other stuff. On any weekend night at Sarah Ward's parties or downtown clubs or close to the internships, I had all sorts of substances running through me. And not only that, I was well aware of my substances involving other substances. You knew your E was in your cup of heroin or amphetamines. Sometimes even your pot could be laced with PCP or just a cocoa puff, pots burning with cocaine. Once I even accidentally smoked crack in you, it was a cocoa puff. None of these were big events, eventually just things you did. God bless the 90s, I remember scrawling on the whiteboard outside my dorm room and dry, dry erase Kirsten. I would have tattooed it on my body, except I was still some years from being able to afford tattoos. But it was a red right era for me I was felt out, I still feel. Everyone I knew was an iconoclast, and misfit, so different that we never considered we could all be the same, never thought of enough people-owned alternative, wasn't it just mainstream? Never mind. The halls were always vibrating to 90s hip hop or rock, like Gangstar, and, Walt, and we were always on something. Time was always running out in the best way. Semesters over another break in one anyway. Why no home you could be in the middle of it all, or on a campus or in the city? Who needed parents, stability, goals, and future? I was alive and alone a few months. My friends were free spirits, losers, anarchists, skaters, punks, taggers, club kids, strippers, professional junkies. I have very few memories of getting any work done, but I did remain diligent about my New York City journals and internships as they were more than anything an excuse to have a purpose in New York City. I got to tell people I work in New York City, even if it was for free. There's a photo of me my parents took on the first day of Sarah Lawrence. I entered that first day in cut off shorts, pillowless, a white t shirt, baseball cap, stylus, ponytail, long hair, makeupless, the suburban uniform of any Southern California 90s kid. It only took a few hours there to realize I stood out and not in a good way. By the end of my time there, I thought of my senior year. I had a calculated mask of red lipstick and black eyeliner, hair in a studded afro, neck and fingers covered in costume jewelry, a frayed leather coat on top of a black leotard and leather pants. I was at least a dozen pounds skinnier, my skin a bit gray. I gave off an air of dirtiness, all meanings of the word. I had it become something else, something that I would have once been frightened of, and that was the point.
0: We'll start there for that chapter. <clears throat> <clears throat> Let's see, can you see me? Oh, perfect. Well, I loved the interrelation between those two excerpts. Let me take out this, I'll uh, throw
1: uh-huh. Uh, you inspired me because I loved. I was. I both loved and. I mean, I thought so many things were in your book, and so much of it was brought me back to this very specific era that you and I shared. And I have some nostalgia for it. I have some horror for it. For it. I have some trauma and love for that time that I think sometimes we we glamorize but it was actually kind of a hard time to live through. And I think your book does a really good job showing all the sides. It shows the humor, you know, it has the humor, but it also has the, the sort of
0: the darkness, too. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I really, I think in writing about that time, for me, it was really important to resist nostalgia because I think nostalgia always, you know, creates a kind of false, um, sort of whitewashed version of the truth. Um, you know, it takes away as you know, you know the sort of lived experience, the complications, the death. I mean, so many people were dying of drugs and AIDS and suicide. You know, and um, so for me, I really wanted to go into that time in all of its complications, but resist because I think right now, as we know, you know, there's a lot. It's very pop. The '90s are very popular in pop culture, right? And so, what does that mean? It means like I don't know, a Nirvana T-shirt and maybe, like, a septum piercing, and, and that's not all, right? And, and so I think resisting that product means, like, bringing all the layers back, right? So all the complications, um, and all of the... I mean, the hope, but also the hopelessness, you know? Because I think, for me, um, in many ways, I mean, that was... It was just assumed, like, kind of what you're, what you're talking about in the excerpt you just read, where this idea... It's kind of a nihilism, but it's based in a reality, right? Like, look at the world around us in all of its horror. You know, we don't need that. We need to create some kind of alternative. And then I think in both of our books, right, that alternative ends up being drugs in some some form. Um, And one thing I found really that's interesting about in in your book is the drugs. I mean, your book, of course, is nonfiction, mine is fiction, but I also had these similar experiences, of course. and I think, um, in your book, I think, you know, you talk about the drugs in Sarah Lawrence, you talk about the drugs in New York, you talk about, you know, being part of that drug culture and embracing it. Um, but it seems, even in all the trouble in that drug culture, it seems like there's a lot more trouble in the drugs that were prescribed to you, you know, and the side effects of those and the way that addiction plays out with prescription medications. But of course, it's, it's considered like an acceptable addiction because it's a doctor prescribing it and the doctor knows best. And so I wanted to wonder if you want to talk about sort of that kind of hypocrisy um, and also that, uh, that lore.
1: Yeah, this is, I mean, it, it's interesting because um, I, you know, I've been sober for a bit, and, but I struggle with that definition because every time a doctor prescribes me medication, I'm just so fearful of it. Because everything feels like drugs to me. Even just taking like a vitamin or taking my friends who like those, it you It's a good supplement. I mean, just try this for Lyme disease. I'm one of the most difficult patients there are. i just one is very, very, very expensive medications, and they're under because I trashed my system in my late teens and 20s. I always have that, like, feelings that even remember when, when like, ecstasy is a big drug. We to joke, like... God, what's gonna happen when we get older? No <laughs> one So we're in the study on like are we all gonna like be are we hate this? Something God, it's trying to stay good. Um but the part of me wonders, you know, if that but then there's this other simple part of me that really struggles with taking medications and recently I had to go back on medication to sleep. That's actually in my book that was really, really narrowing for me. And what um, I had to do was mass muscle activation syndrome on the top of the line, and I was literally sitting every other night since last January until recently. And so it was a choice my doctor and I had to make. And he knows me very well, and he knows my absolute horror of um, pills. So it was like I was like shaking and freaking out about it. So I do think you know. And I'm of a lot of minds about this, but I think the, the drugs the doctors gave me in those years before I was diagnosed with Lyme, um, I do think harmed me more than a lot of street drugs. And right, but this because this doctor did not really bother to understand my history of addiction, my father had a history with that, and that, you, that they were so acceptable if you were a certain type of woman, you know. Of um, a certain race or ethnicity, as college educated, so easy for doctors to then just like like let you be in a state of doctor shopping all the time and collecting pill bottles of, you know, oh, you have anxiety, oh, you need to sleep, here to take more, and, and not really bothering to look you know, at the underlying causes of that are, which I now know. Um, you know, I'm still not able to live in my ideal, weird, non free realm, and now I know why I'm taking things. So it's a really big issue. I mean, I think of this like, you know, like like Trump's war on opiates and all that, and I think about people with disabilities who don't abuse those drugs, who need those drugs to survive, Um, and just the American, like, crop relationship with drug culture and drugs in general, and how we don't understand addiction versus dependence, but we don't understand medicine versus, I mean, it's just we are culturally confused, and I think this goes further in the 90s, I anyway. think maybe it started in the 60s, I mean, maybe it started in the 20s or 30s, I don't know. you know, but like everything in America is excessive and manic and kind of crazy. <laughs> That's all I think, I don't know. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and I think, I think there's always sort of the acceptable addictions and the unacceptable addictions, right? And part of that depends on who is doing the drugs. Part of that depends on where people get the drugs. But it doesn't really depend on the effects, right? Because, you know, as we know, there are plenty of prescription medications that have absolutely horrible effects. and But that's considered fine as long as you got it from the doctor and, and as long as the right people are profiting, right? So... As long as it's, you know, these big corporations and it's not someone, like, selling drugs on the street, you know. As long as it's a governmental source and not, you know, going into someone, you know, being able to have an alternative to a nine-to-five job by selling drugs or something like that. And um, so I think... But I think there's also something that I was thinking about when you were reading the excerpt uh, that you just read about how drugs... um, Like, embracing a life of drugs feels like creating an alternative in some ways, right? It's like, and I think in sketch to see, you know, the characters in the book are growing up at at, at a time where they're living in Boston, which is a city rapidly afraid of difference. They're living in a gay culture that magnifies all the worst aspects of straight normalcy, so racism, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia. And they're living at a time, 1995, they're, you know, they're all coming of age with AIDS suffusing their desires and no way to imagine a way out. Right? and so drugs for them in many ways are the way that community is formed and of course it's corrupt but so is the world around them right? and so I think there's always that, um, that complicated relationship between resistance and um, giving up and between um, escape and conformity um, and I think it's hard to say, like, where is the line, right?
1: Yeah, I love what you're saying about community, because I should be back to the board that came up for me the most when I was reading It And I think it's a book that's all about community and trying to find community trying to hold on to community as community is being threatened in so many different ways. And so the drugs are, you know, and, and there's a glimmer of that passage, like you said, like I, I read too. But it's really like, it's, it's very sad. It's a sad testament to our culture, and I think it's why we've, we continue to have major drug problems. This culture we've really become more and more isolated. It's so much harder for people who are like my students' age to find their people because they're home all the time at assaults on the laptop. And there's online communities, online communities saved my life and was able old, build person in many ways because I can do that and I this guy with you and you know, feel that sense of community, but but that feeling of being in a room with live people and sharing something, even if it's something that's like killing us, raising up that still felt like um, it still felt like something, and that's really sad, I mean it's really, really sad, I think about my my grandmothers and my great grandmothers came from villages. And, I mean, I guess they smoked opium. I don't know. <laughs> 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 it's like, they have community built in, they have their people right around them. And we have to do, we have to jump through so many hurdles in our Western cultures to create that sort of intimacy. So, and it's not really ever going to get better, I don't think. It's possibly going to get worse. Um, and I guess nostalgia never talks about that. Mm-hmm. I guess I agree with hate Nostalgia, because it's so it's so selective. Mm-hmm. It's so fashion. It looks at all the, the surfaces, and the, the surface of the night. Let's be honest, it looks great. Like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I look at the videos. I look at the style. I look at like you know, all photos. We all looked amazing. Whatever. <laughs> it we were it was a menace and so many ways you know it was a lot of grow culture a lot more straight road culture than I used to remember I used to go back and look at that and if you look at the top 40 hits I mean were, a lot of those were straight white guys and who had drug clubs but a lot of them died and they're, they're still canonized I mean they were of great talent but you know I mean you know this you know, in Seattle I mean, Seattle's still like trying to that to grunge and grunge eggs, and I have a lot of different feelings about it now, with some of the I've in my 40s, you know, it's like, I'm like, why did why didn't we let that happen? Why did we glorify that at the moment? What was, like, why is that interesting? There's other things that were interesting, like, like, you know, multiculturalism in the that were a language of diversity and things like that that were kind of coming out of different movements. That was interesting, but... I'm not sure some of the, the stuff about the nineties that those kids in the nirvana t shirts are thinking was really that interesting. There's a lot of rape culture, you know, like mm-hmm. everyone I know got raped. Like we didn't report it. Cause see that's you go to Ryan's and people would talk about being raped and there was again some bonding in the community, but it was just something that happened to everybody. But so we sh- that we sh- that shouldn't have been okay.
0: Yeah, and I think you're right. What is, what is glamorized is always the sort of the glossiest surface and the most kind of conformist aspect even of counterculture, right? It's yeah. not like the actual creation of a, an alternative that's glamorized, it's just the surface, right? And yeah. I think, like what you said about multiculturalism, that would be, like if that was what people be, was being glamorized about the 90s, it would be like, bring it on, you know? Okay. And, <laughs> but it's always, and then I think we end up having the same conversations over and over again right? because you, know, you mentioned rape culture which of course was the same as it is now you know, in many ways and now the way people are talking about it is as if it's new right? so it's like and I think if people if the conversation was allowed to continue in a substantive way instead of just being you know have like a, new, a few news flashes and then it's just all pushed up the rug right and so instead of like bringing back those conversations and bring, making them into something else it ends up being this kind of repetition of only the surface, even in the more um, substantive engagement. Yes, exactly. And that's why again, like I mean your work with
1: Active, you're, you're active in the streets. and your your activist groups, I think really come through and sketch to see beautifully. And the fact that you bring a's is so often in so many books that I've read and in my memory, the eighties where mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. and they act like it disappeared in the 90s mm-hmm. People think AIDS is like, like I have students who think, like, what's AIDS? Like they just totally think, like, well, if you get AIDS, they're wrong. And like, the privilege of that is so insane. And it's just weird how AIDS has become erased. Um, HIV has become like the spirit factor of it. The fact that you bring that into the, the, the 90s and... 'Cause it was there all along. I mean, that was another thing that you always thought that you could die of. You know, if you were in any sort of like high risk group, which everyone I knew was. And, and, and then, again, the behaviors nowadays haven't changed. So here that that has become erased. And now I see other chronic illnesses but in fact this is a question I kinda have for you because I don't know the answer to this. But I've lately had a lot of people interview me or try to talk to me about how Lyme disease um, is and, and its current um, political positioning is similar to the AIDS crisis. And I have mixed feelings saying that because, you know, again I lived through whatever moment on the eighties, you know, when it was first announced, you know, I remember it on the news and, and and I remember and I remember people who died of it. I remember, you know, I have very sad relationships. And to me, I don't know how it's analogous and if you know people they're dying of Lyme disease and I do you know that there's not a lot of attention or research being put into it, and there's not a care, But it's awkward. And I, I don't know if it's our temptation or especially some metaphors to things or to make these analogous to understand because we're so also body-phobic that's the culture you know we want healthy bodies we want triumphant bodies but we're all going to die that's I'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're all going to be we're all going to be at some point point. and maybe the thing that scares people about you know, HIV and AIDS or chronic illnesses like Lyme maybe some people know they can kill you I shouldn't um, is that it's often um, young people. Mm-hmm. And young, beautiful people are not supposed to, mm-hmm. not to die. That's what we think. But yet, yeah, all of the people all the time. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, that's an interesting point. I mean, I think, I think the similarities are, that's certainly one of them, the youth, and I think also the ways in which Lyme and other chronic illnesses are just dismissed and uh, there is no attention, you know, attention is not focused on them. I don't know, I don't know that the comparison works beyond that, and I think, in some ways, I think it actually, I can see where people are coming from because they want attention to it, and they see, like, oh, people paid attention, you know, to HIV and AIDS, but they only paid attention when, like, hundreds of thousands of people were dying, when, you know, uh, you know, gay men and... Uh, trans women and drug addicts and had been just allowed to die like mass deaths over you know the course of decades and uh, and also I think even the the other part that doesn't work also is that there is still no cure for HIV. Um, there's only you know there's a drug to prevent it potentially and there are drugs to take to manage it, but there is no cure and and so I don't think I don't think either I don't think the goal. It's maybe the right one and I also I think the analogy doesn't work but I do think and also I think in a way it kind of limits the possibilities of actually taking Lyme seriously because can't we talk about Lyme and other chronic illnesses on their own terms and talk about what actually will help people you know it's not going to be a drug I doubt like one drug boom suddenly wow everything's great right I mean I wish for anything right but like um, so I think looking yes.
1: at I feel like it, it isn't the surface. And it comes out of desperation. Mm, yes. For attention to causes that are legitimate. But uh, yeah, we think, I don't know, it detracts from both the, the severity and mm-hmm. seriousness of both, both um, issues. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and also the specificity, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and actually, and what you were saying earlier about it's interesting when I started to write Sketch to See. Like, I didn't actually know that HIV would be so central. Um, But I think in going into that moment, you know, into 1995, like, how could it not, right? And so we look at these media images of like 1995, it's nowhere to be found, you know, on any level. But, and also we can look now from our own time period and say, like, oh, right around the corner, something was about to change, right? There were about to be medications that actually extended people's lives and made HIV into a manageable condition for many, but there's no way for anyone in 1995 to imagine that. You know, the only... And I think especially for these queens, you know, who are growing up, you know, coming of age in that time, like, certain death is, is just in the picture, right? There's no way to think about anything else. And, um, and so, so it's interesting for me, and I think in a way, maybe that's the thing about... How to not write nostalgically is to actually, like, I mean, to me, the opposite of nostalgia is truth, right? And so, for me, in writing the book, I, I was like, oh, look at what's coming through, you know? And that, and like you said, I mean, how could you live in that time or talk about that time without it being central, you know? Unless, of course, you're living in a very, um, you know, I don't know, in Donald Trump's house or something, you know? Um, but, uh, and, with, and just Donald Trump, you know, only. And not, the other, not the many people who are probably visiting Donald Trump. Um, okay. but, um, but, yeah, so I think it's, it's that. Um, and I think you do this really well, too, you know, in writing about um, not allowing a kind of simplified narrative, you know, and in terms of line, right? And I think you talk about it in the book, how you wanted when you wrote the book to write this story of like a woman who conquered um, you know, sickness and addiction, and then rose on the other side, triumphant. And we all want to write that story, you know, and um, and I think, but the story you tell is not that story, you know, because, because that is what happened. You know, and I wondered... Also, I think it's, it's interesting that, you know, the book, um, I feel like for, I think, you know, I think for, for those of us with chronic illness, we're always supposed to tell that story, right? And I'm sure you have pressure, like, at, in writing the book to have the story be more triumphant. And I think, but I think what's really interesting is how I feel like, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel like people have been really reading it on its own terms, And relating to, like, the actual fact that it's not that story, you know, and that it has been embraced pretty widely, I think, and, like, in media, you know, in terms of, um, and in a pretty sophisticated way, where people are, like, actually, I think maybe in some ways, the fact that you don't tell that story allows people in reviews or in, in, in interviews to also complicate the way they're talking about it, right? Because they're not asking you to be like, and then you are you know, it's congratulations, you know. So, and
1: I wonder... I can never you know. be that person. I mean, that is, yeah. maybe again, it's like our 90s upbringing, like I look at like health and wellness culture, and I'm always a little rebellious and iconoclastic, and it's hard for me to ever fit into mainstream, even if so mainstreams embrace me. And look, this is a book that HarperCollins is a mainstream imprint, and so... I had to bite some bites with them, I mean, people have to remember, I'll the own Murdoch, <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> uh, that was, you know, I, I sold it to a the particular editor there, understood, and it came from the back of my mind, and um, and I sold it for very little money, and I've never seen money from my books. And again, that's probably, again, my 90s upbringing that allows me to think that that's okay because we did a lot of extra love and not for money, and everyone I know who came from my world is still broke. <laughs> like, we're still struggling, clawing our way through, you know, I'm still crowdfunding for healthcare. Um, and, and again, I don't need to memorize this, I just feel like heartened that there's others of us out there who are like that. But yeah, I I, I had to write a book that was a complicated narrative, I think you do too, and I think because I know your other work too, I think you and I are both kind of like by nature stylists, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, we like language. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, We don't, we wouldn't be able to tell a story with really conventional, like, narrative. I think my guess would be like some of the canonical works that I find hard to get through. You probably do too. You know, I've been a professor of great writing for ages, but you know, I would sort of laugh at my students, like, with my students when I wouldn't like certain works. I would still teach them, you know, certain canonical works, but you know, I think office hours I'd have a laugh and my students be like, oh, she's boring. <laughs> you know that's you know, we're sure part of like Europe and Canada but you know, I like for instance I was really attracted to a lot of southern writers because I thought Southern writers were amazing stylists. Mm-hmm. And so the way the language worked, um, sort of like the local language, weird cadences and, and uh, maximalist, um, and stuff like that. And I see that in your work too, and I love that. in the book it's like so, it's like you know, it's always like high octane, <laughs> but it is in a lot of ways. I love how relentless it is, and I love that it's just like, um, the language carries the story just as much as thought
0: does. Yeah, for me, I think in writing it, it was, I felt like voice was the most important thing. And anything that got in the way of the voice, I had to edit it out. And yeah. through that, you know, and also I think it was really fun to write for me because of the way drugs change the language, the way trauma changes the language, the way experience changes the language, the way Boston changes the language, the way the Queen's vernacular changes the language. And just to allow that to happen, for me, in many ways, is what guides the book. Yeah, more than a conventional plot structure, so like
1: you're saying. Yeah, I highlighted so many sections. I just love how right? you ripped off that and like how you were able to go from levity to darkness mm-hmm. like quite quickly, you know, um, the trauma like the father and all that stuff and how that comes in and out all the time. But is there in the same, like, you know, when you... You know, you have like snippets of music and, and, and some sort of docs with him, which by the way, I didn't have a full bit. Circle, but wow. That was, that was a secret. rug that was given by a doctor. So it didn't work for me. But <laughs> I don't know. Like, I was like, I missed that circle. But, and, um, you know, it, it, that mixture, that, 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 you know, kind of like, Hybridized work, you know, where I think, like, in a way, like, we're a lot of us writers, you know, we, we share friends like Alex G. I think a lot of us are actually like like, poets, really. And poetry was so big then, I'm so happy poetry is so big now, too. Mm-hmm. And, like, I was, you know, St. Mark's and we were at the Poets Cafe, and I know you did a lot of work with a lot of major poets, like, those were my heroes, too. You know, poetry again, I think, had a special relationship to counterculture. Even mm-hmm. though it wasn't MTV, my late friend, the great Maggie Estep, doing spots on MTV, you know, and she was so sort of slam. I guess you'd call it, you know, spoken word or slam, whatever you call it today, but, but that, there were segments like, even on MTV mm-hmm. that had that. Mm-hmm. And so poetry was cool. Mm-hmm. And I think we're just, we're just seeing that again. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's, that's interesting. That's the nice Bible. That's, that's exciting. I do think it's actually a good time for literature. We need it. We really need it. More than ever, I'm a heartbreak of the last year. For I me, mean, the hardest part was when I couldn't really read. Mm. So, you're one of the first books, actually, I completed this year. Mm.
0: Well, you so, did. Thank you.
1: Because <laughs> yeah. I couldn't, my disease bleeds so neurotoxic that I couldn't. You know, I've been book reviewing for years now, so mm-hmm, and, um, mm-hmm. but I can do events with people like read, their books, and because I can't work right
0: now, it's a great joy. Mm-hmm. Do we have any questions from the audience? Yes.
2: I guess I'm sorry. So I have not read her book yet, but I was reading an interview earlier today where she distinguished between the books she sold and the book she actually ended up writing. I'm wondering, when did you realize that you weren't going to be able to fit it into like the traditional structure of what would sell? How did your like publicists and like publishers react to that? Like, What was that process like? Because it sounds like a lot.
0: Could you hear that for a um, Not the
1: whole thing. Okay, I'll,
0: I can, yeah, I'll paraphrase it. So basically the question was, um, and you feel free to tell me if I'm getting it wrong, but uh, the question was, when did you realize in writing the book um, that it wasn't going to be the book that you had originally pitched and that the publisher had originally wanted? When did you realize it was going to be more complicated and not going to be following that traditional uh, structure of you know, rising above and triumph?
1: Well, I sold that proposal and... I sold it. it was a really shitty proposal. But I did a terrible job with it. It's like just the worst proposal you could imagine. It's was just like because that interview me and we only sold this whole guy, so I was like, Who hmm, knows the story? Like you see me how like, came through New York City. Um so but I didn't really know what I was gonna do. I mean I, I read memoirs, um, but I was mostly a fiction writer and a journalist. A journalist is very different than memoirs. So I didn't know what I was doing, but I only knew what was gonna happen. After I had a concussion, in December 2015, I had a little of concussion. It was around the time that I got listed, And I hadn't done enough work on it. And I had to deliver this manuscript. And um, I had severe post-concussion syndrome on top of the line relapse. And I was given orders, like, and my concussion center, like, things like, don't, look appears to me, just rest. And I thought, God, I'm going to commit suicide, do that. I won't be able to survive what we're do. I will by myself, because I blew my dog, and I had such horrible symptoms. And um, it was then that I forced myself to really write the book, honestly, and it did get a little darker, and it was, it was like, a tale of triumph. Because naively, I told myself when I sold it that, like, I was never going to have another debilitating relapse, and I got to read. I um, I'm very sensitive to mold. The mold is often sugar for it as sugar for it. This time around I thought I had the dreaded mold so I'm sort of trying to plan myself out of that too. Um, but it's um, yeah, that's, that's when I knew I actually did the writing of it, but it came after another horrible tragedy. So all sorts of things can happen during the creation of the book, the book has a long life and it lives with you it breathes with you and so when that happens to your life that's that's your process. So yeah, that was that was when I was like, oh man, hey, how am I gonna write this book? And then I thought, I know how. I'm gonna have to write really honestly, and it's gonna be really really um, a different book. So wanted to, to write and stuff. okay so look at first were like, okay. We enter it in, we'll, uh, we'll take it. Maybe we really have, there was a lot of like, line memoirs that they had purchased, and there, had, there have been other line memoirs, but there wasn't one like this, and I was trying to see something a little different.
0: Are there any other questions? Questions, questions. Okay, well great, well, thank you for this great conversation. Um, one thing, actually, I just thought of, actually, when you were saying that, was the ways in which, I think this comes through in your book, how, um, I think this is true of a lot of us who have survived trauma, who deal with chronic illness, um, who are basically all the time just trying to survive, and who are also writers, that writing, in some ways, is what keeps us alive. I know that's true for me. Like, writing keeps me alive, you know, it is, it is how I survive trauma, it is how I and able to express myself in all... Like, I can sometimes write things that I would not say, and then in writing them, like, I, then I publish it, right? And then I'm like, well, I have to say it now, right? You know, and, I would like, to allow for that sort of public vulnerability, for me, is its own kind of healing, you know? It doesn't change, you know, like, my chronic illness or change the trauma necessarily, but it does shift something. And then, but then at the same time, always having to deal with chronic illness and with trauma... Makes it harder to write, so it's like this complicated uh, back and forth, right?
1: It's a mess. Yeah, it's really hard. I always have to wait. Like, can I? I'm, I'm supposed to like do another event next week, and like maybe actually five hours short or so hours away. But the only reason I think I can do that event is because there's a doctor I've done waiting with for like ages who can see you the next morning and that paint like we pay for an hour we pay for that doctor's school like just
2: calculations like that in everybody just like they're kind of the elevators life,
1: life, life, people don't think about like when they're casual about that uh, oh you can fly over or you can mm-hmm. take this or that or whatever or you don't realize that at least a lot of the ones I know are not rich. I mean they come from but the, this This is like It's like love. Love is illogical. Love is crazy. <laughs> so, you know, I wish I had maybe, like, if I had been a banker, I would be cured by now. <laughs> 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 I could afford a lot of the treatments better. I've never been able to get 100% love well, because I've always had to it just cut corners. And then I was at the door. And in a weird way, you know, you know I'm still trying to work, and I tried not to cancel, and eventually, eventually I got canceled for people who didn't want me to Skype in, which is very ableist, actually. I think we have a culture where more authors can do this if they can, you I'll tell like this culture you might not know you out of, you know, in the ER or when you're on oxygen but that's the, you know, their, their level of care ends at a certain point. <laughs> so I think of us a lot like athletes, you know, they put us out there and we get injured and we're not always taken care of after that. We make a lot less money, so. but <laughs> But we, you know, it's a, it's a really tough job and our our tool is our brain, but it's also like where we live. Oh, our head. So we have to preserve this thing and it's, and it gets harder and harder at all the time and not to mention the world of trauma, which I think is huge in both of our work, and that does not help. Um, you know, but you know, I don't know. I don't know many people who live traumaless instances, mm-hmm. so, But you know, I I only know a small percentage of them have afford to actually address the traumas, but mm-hmm. you even know, that in America is not so we have work to
2: do. Still, was after this, I only get out of bed so I can go back, back to activism. I
1: know that's so
2: important to both of us.
0: So a lot of really worthwhile right? So, right. Well, great. If there are there any other questions, just last minute? Oh yes, yeah. one more question.
2: Um. So as you both were talking and with some of the questions, um, I was wondering, like, what you felt about the idea that some people have that you can like write your way out of something where like what we're talking about today is like how with sort of avoiding that because when you're avoiding nostalgia like you're actively trying to address everything and just write your way out of it um so what are your thoughts on that sure
0: sure um did you hear that part you
2: yeah, about writing your way out of
1: things. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm, such a good question. I don't... I wish that was my dream, was that I would write this book and I'd be magically well, so Then I'd never be sick again. And then by writing about it, I wouldn't have to ever deal with it again. I'm mm-hmm. the magical thinking that I had in my head. I what's this book about... I could move on to the next book, which have nothing to do with this. Well, that's not really how life works, <laughs> you know. I don't know. I think you can write your. Maybe right can write your next but I don't think that's exactly the therapy of writing, you know. I don't think that's the. Uh, I don't think that's be, um, the. The way sorry, I lied. just want to start. Let's do it some more light. Sorry. Just, okay. just, you know um, I don't think that's how it always works, I wish it would, but I think you can keep alive in other ways. It, I don't think it gets you necessarily the end point that you're sleeping, but I think it can keep you fed in other ways. That's just, just sitting, being in it, you know, great is, well, you're very good once told me to just sit in the shit. It's going to just be sit in the shit, and that's what's right to be an exercise. And just being in it, being in a moment and trying
0: to untangle it yeah I think, I think for me um, I know for me like in my writing I've been drawn more and more towards vulnerability and there is something in being like in writing something that I feel like if I write this down I'm going to die you know because it's too vulnerable and then I write it and I don't die so there is something in that to realize, oh, I can be that vulnerable. I can, because I think you know, when I came of age in the early 90s, you know, in kind of radical queer outsider worlds and the kinds of relationships that people were drawn towards were always about revealing everything, right? And it was like, as soon as you so, you know, a lot of us, you know, were incest I, was an incest, I am an incest survivor, you know, had dealt with, you know, being uh, persecuted by parents and by schools and by the cities where people would come from, and um, and so I think in order to survive we have to project invulnerability, right? And I know that's what saved me, you know, as a child was to learn how to not let anyone realize that they were affecting me. So like if I was walking down the street and someone told me they wanted to kill me, I just laugh, <laughs> you know, oh hi, you know. And I think actually that happens a lot in sketch where the characters are constantly being attacked and have to figure out a way. Like I think for Alexa, the narrative, the most important thing is not to let anyone know that it affects her, and I think always having to perform invulnerability while always being vulnerable takes its toll. And so I think there is something for me in writing vulnerability, um, like more vulnerable than I can imagine, that does change something. You know, it doesn't. It doesn't. It's. It, you know, I think it's. It's complicated. It doesn't. It doesn't change the trauma, and it doesn't change the chronic illness. But it does change something for me. Like it gives me more space to breathe. I think. Um, and so I think that's what it can allow for me at least. Uh, and yeah,
1: that makes a lot of sense. It's so beautiful.
0: Um well great. Unless anyone has any other questions, uh, thank you, poor Chaser, for doing this. Thanks. It was so wonderful talking to you. I loved every minute of it, and thank you so much for your book. Thank you so much
1: for your book. I can't wait to see you in person again so. <laughs> Perfect.
2: Good Thanks. luck with everything. Thanks, Al, I love Baltimore, too. She said i to my favorite places, but sometimes you're living
1: there. It's such a great, great city. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye. I'm going
0: to take my chance to get a Okay. Tell me what it looks like. Do I look like <laughs> <laughs> so that? I wish it was less than me. What's the, what's the angle? Is this a good angle? Well, you'll see. Yeah. You posted okay. it. i will sure. you. Bye. Good
1: night. Bye. Thank you.
0: <laughs> well thanks everyone I'll be here to sign books in case anyone wants me to sign a book or ask any private questions or if anyone wants a hug like
2: This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center
0: For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.